welcome to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, medievalist scholar, wife and mom, and lover of Christmas music, the giant inspiration for this new series. Before I get into the song, uh, here are a few reminders that I normally place at the end of the episode. Because this series is structured around music, however, they don't fit at the end like they normally do. I'm trying to give you a contemplative space to listen and meditate on the song, and it tends to be a little bit marred when um, I'm putting in my Twitter handle or my Instagram account. So um, just let me remind you, I love to hear from you. Let me know what you thought about this episode or series or any questions you have. Please uh, if you want to follow me on Instagram at Old Books with Grace or on Twitter at Grace Hammond PhD. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend, subscribe, or if you could, rate it on iTunes. Doing these things helps others to find this podcast and it helps me out too. The text of this episode is also available on oldbookswithgrace.com. Today's Christmas song is, as the youth say, a banger, which is in stark contrast to the Coventry Carol that we covered last week. It's the wonderful Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And again, unlike the previous two carols, it has a much more easily traceable writer and history. Charles Wesley wrote this hymn. It also, in my opinion, has a distinct best version. The one on Amy Grant's classic 1983 Christmas album, A Christmas Album. It's on the Spotify playlist that I made for Advent and Christmas. And yes, you can fight me on that. I'm willing to die on that particular Christmas carol hill. As it turns out, and as I did not know until this series, Charles Wesley is not the same person as John Wesley, founder of Methodism. Clearly, I'm not a Methodist. They were brothers. And Charles Wesley wrote about, wait for it, 9,000 hymns, some of which include our most beloved, most well-known hymns in the Western church, like Christ the Lord is Risen Today, And Can It Be, Oh, For a Thousand Tongues to Sing, and so many more. Seriously, it's overwhelming when you Google this man. Hymn writing was how Charles Wesley processed just about everything in his life, from the deaths of friends and family members, to holidays, to births in the family, to historical events like the Jacobite uprising of the time. What cracks me up a little bit about this song, about Hark the Herald Angels Sing, is that Wesley originally wrote it to have a very slow, solemn melody behind the lyrics. He really wanted the song to have a very regal and majestic feel, that kind of heavy velvet hangings and uh, that vibe. But nobody really liked that version. It did not take off. Eventually, some folks instinctively put the wonderful lyrics to a far superior tune by the great Austrian-Jewish composer Felix Mendelssohn. So let's listen to it together. Hark the herald angels sing Glory to the newborn King Peace on earth and mercy mild God and sin 
sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. With angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. With angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace, hail the Son of Righteousness, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Christ the highest heaven adore, Christ the everlasting Lord. Come, desire of nations, come, fix in us thy humble home. Come, desire of nations, come, fix in us thy humble The very best hymns, and we all know Charles Wesley was a brilliant hymn writer, have both good sound, good lyrics, and sound doctrine. Hark the Herald Angels Sing is a robustly theological song. These three verses, and there are more, but I chose to focus on these. These are the ones we all generally know the best. Each set us to thinking in a particular way about the Incarnation, much like the New Testament itself. The first verse, Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, etc. Place us in Bethlehem, in that historical moment. It's like the Gospel of Luke. And by the way, I said verse. I really mean stanza, the first stanza. So this first stanza is like the Gospel of Luke with its vivid account of the nativity. So listen, the hymn tells us, to the angels singing to the shepherds. See that scene in your head of the shepherds with their flocks at night, the baby in the manger, Mary and Joseph. Luke gives us that. This first stanza gives us that. The second stanza draws back a little bit. It's more like the Gospel of John. It has the big, big picture in mind. 
the word became flesh and dwelt among us, Emmanuel. So it's mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more they may die, so on. Veiled in flesh, hail the incarnate deity. It's this big, big, big picture. In the third stanza, we look forward to Christ's eternal kingship and the writing of the universe to his dwelling in our hearts and his gift of abundant life. So this is a sort of after the incarnation moment meditation, what is coming in between his first and second coming um, and ultimately in revelation, particularly hail the son of righteousness risen with healing in his wings the everlasting Lord come desire of nations. It's more like Paul's letters, Revelation, where it's that idea of eagerly awaiting the kingdom on earth. My favorite of these verses is the second one, mild he lays his glory by. That first line brings into my mind a vivid picture A great king strips off his heavy, glorious robes and gleaming crown, laying down his scepter and great seal, the trappings of absolute power, to reveal a fragile, very human body, what we all share. Hark holds the tensions of God's great power and great humility, of Jesus' lordship and manhood together. It reminds me of the famous 4th century bishop and theologian, St. Augustine of Hippo, who almost compulsively couldn't stop exploring that overwhelming tension of the incarnation and what it means for us as embodied creatures ourselves. His pseudobiography, Confessions, depicts how, as a young man, Augustine tried out religion after religion, philosophy after philosophy, seeking satisfaction, finding none. Though born to a Christian mother, Monica, he rejected her Christianity as provincial and embarrassing due to the bodily nature of the incarnation and of miracles. The hip religions and philosophies of the day were more invested in transcending the crude limitations of the body in order to reach purity of spirit, which sounds an awful lot like some of the philosophies of our day too, not least the worship of technology. uh, transcending our crude limitations to find things that make us more than human. The incarnation, God becoming human, intentionally limiting himself, seemed positively stupid. In a world where things seem so wrong, where we need the power to right them, why would God make himself smaller? Augustine narrates how he stumbled out of one religion into the next as he tries to reach God through his own willpower and his prodigious mind. He writes to God later in his life. Accordingly, I looked for a way to gain the strength I needed to enjoy you, but I did not until I embraced the mediator between God and humankind, the man Jesus Christ, who's also God, supreme over all things, blessed forever. For the word became flesh, so that your wisdom, through whom you created all things, might become for us the milk adapted to our infancy. Not yet was I humble enough to grasp the humble Jesus as my God, nor did I know what his weakness had to teach. Your word, the eternal truth who towers above the higher spheres of your creation, 
raises up to himself those creatures who bow before him. But in these lower regions, he has built himself a humble dwelling from our clay and used it to cast down from their pretentious selves those who do not bow before him and then make a bridge to bring them to himself. He heals their swollen pride and nourishes their love that they may not wander even farther away through self-confidence, but rather weaken as they see before their feet the Godhead grown weak by sharing our garments of skin and wearily fling themselves down upon him so that he may arise and lift them up. And that's from Confessions Book 7. Augustine plays with the idea of weakness in this passage. What if what he considered weak, babyish, embarrassing, stupid? His mother's belief that God became a man and embraced the needy human body to share life with them was actually the source of profound communal strength. What if what he had always considered powerful, philosophical prowess, popularity, intellectual capability, rejection of the body, was actually weak in its stubborn refusal of human need, Augustine's own need for God's humility. As Augustine recognizes that his own insistence on knowledge and power keeps him from truth, he also discovers that the ability to confess need and ask for help is actually at the root of the learning that he craves. A combination of desire and confession of need fuels spiritual transformation. To admit human need in the face of God's humanity is, for Augustine, to paradoxically weaken and strengthen as you are lifted up by sharing the flesh with God. To return to this song, God's act of laying his glory by is mild, gentle, humble, the opposite of wrath or irritation or frustration with how we've bungled things here. The brilliance of Wesley's words, married to the equal brilliance and preaching power of Mendelssohn's melody, lead us to sing veiled in flesh and hail the incarnate loudly and triumphantly while the more obvious loud and triumphant words like Godhead and deity slide surprisingly into the quieter part of the verse. Augustine preaches to us what this second verse is all about. Despite God's infinite bigness, infinite power, infinite goodness, infinite beauty, he did not force us through that power, through that hugeness, even through the goodness and beauty to receive him, which is basically what hugeness does, even huge goodness. You can't ignore it. You can't sideline it because it dominates the entire skyline. Godzilla, each skyscraper in a downtown, even something massively beautiful like a cathedral, they all assault your eye with their immensity. In the incarnation, God instead becomes smaller to meet us as an adult stoops down to meet a child's eyes instead of running them over or shouting over them. He hid himself to become findable. And yet we still implicitly believe that by making ourselves bigger and others smaller, we can reach God, happiness, wealth, whatever it is that we want, like Augustine did. Culturally, we inhale an overwhelming amount of messaging daily from advertisers, so-called Christian leaders, political figures, all of whom tell us that we are not enough, 
if we had more power, more strength, more money, more beauty, more whatever, we would be better, more able to handle it all, be able to fix things. But the eminent, infinite word became weak, frail flesh. Augustine discovers that embracing his own weakness leads paradoxically to more fully comprehending God's strength to heal in Jesus' weak, mortal body. As the song says, Jesus has healing in his wings, and shockingly, he invites us into that healing process with all our weakness if we can face it with him. If I have one message that I hammer home in nearly everything I write annoyingly over and over, it's this one. Once I wrote on this very passage from Augustine in graduate school, and somebody commented that they didn't really like the word weakness. Couldn't you use something else? It's too vague. But that's honestly exactly what I like about considering weakness and that word specifically. It can encompass so many things. My weak mortal body's need for glorious caffeinated tea in the morning. The humiliation of when I yell at my children because I'm tired. The sin of my pride, the weak rejection of my weakness. The divine gift of human weakness and need for others that impels me to seek out friendship and love, God's greatest gifts. Stop for a minute to consider the radical nature of this idea. It was the part of Christianity that really blew up the classical ancient world. Other doctrines like the virgin birth or even God transforming into a human coming to save the world, all those were pretty old hat. They had happened before in other philosophies and religions. Aristotle writes that the most virtuous man has no weakness, that he saves his friends from giving their energy to himself. When he's in trouble, he's strong enough to stand alone. I also use he very purposely while paraphrasing Aristotle because Aristotle figured a woman or an enslaved person could never fit those categories. The incarnate God shows us in contrast that true friendship, true fellowship, comes to perfection in the sharing of intimate weakness. I'm giving you a hard set of questions for your Advent practice this week. What does God's weakness have to teach you? What does your weakness have to teach you? Where are you the most weak in your life, in your body, in your spiritual practice, in your relationships, mentally, whatever? Don't shirk the question by being overly general or by giving an interview answer, which would be funny because you'd be giving it to yourself anyway, but you know what I mean by the interview answer. I'm too nice to people (laughs) or whatever it is. That may be true. I'm not saying it's not true, but examine it. What can that teach you, your weakness, teach you about yourself, about Jesus and his embracing of weakness? Where is your weakness a profound gift to you? Again, let's listen together to this song about Jesus' strange intermingling of weakness and power. Thanks for listening. Hark the herald angels sing Glory to the newborn King Peace on earth and mercy mild 
sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. With angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. With angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace, hail the Son of Righteousness, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Christ the highest heaven adore, Christ the everlasting Lord. Come, desire of nations, come, fix in us thy humble home. Come, desire of nations, come, fix in us thy home. Many thanks to my friend Carrie for singing this song with me on this episode.